0: Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in zones one through four of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast, our weekly review or update. Uh, I'm joined today, as always, by uh, Tony D'Onofrio, uh, by Tom Meehan and Kevin Tran, our producer. and. Uh, We'll just kind of jump right into it, um, trying to update on everything that's going on uh, during this time period. We'll start, of course, with looking at COVID-19 and 2020, the year that not sure needed to be. Um, Looking at immunity, uh, there's now been uh, a handful of studies that look uh, at immunity. In other words, some sustained uh, immune response, uh, effective response to the disease and uh, particularly in India with large samples uh, looking at now again these are not randomized controlled experiments or trials but rather our observational studies but um, they are testing individuals that are known to have been uh, had COVID-19 um, and looking at them and understanding uh, over time is there a sustained response because that's a huge question can you be reinfected and so um, right now, they're finding a couple of things. One, it does look like there could be a sustained uh, response significant enough to be uh, provide the immunity that's needed to preclude uh, reinfection. Now, you know, we know like with the flu, you can be reinfected, we can be reinfected every year and maybe even multiple times a year, depending on the strain and things like that, um, but normally not in the same week or month and so on, uh, typically, uh, evidently so. Uh, in this case, the second thing there, so this looks positive that um, maybe there is, you know, you have it or at least a significant amount of disease, and you'll be immune uh, for for a while. Now, whether again, that's weeks or months or or longer is to be determined. But it does look like in many cases, it's quite a few weeks and, and months. Um, but they're also finding that, uh, of course, looking at the neutralizing antibody response, um, and then of course the killer T cell response, but also seeing what they're called B-cell response. Um, And so there does seem to be a complex uh, and sustained response. So let's hope that's some really good news for everybody. Um, For those of us that are infected or get infected, that maybe we will not be reinfected. And that means also uh, not uh, viremic, or in other words, uh, shedding virus and infecting others. Uh, So, But early days, uh, six months into this uh, situation, and... Again, we're still learning about, evidently, the pandemic of 1918. So um, it, these things take a while now with today's science and communication of what scientists are finding being instantaneous. Uh, we, we can see that we're learning uh, in days what took decades. So um, uh, I mentioned the University of Florida and quite a few others have uh, quick, accurate, Uh, inexpensive test and by quick it means very accurate but the turnaround could be a day to even hours and in some case even uh, 15 to 30 minutes. Uh, A Yale test is now looks close or may even by this time received approval uh, that is that very uh, accurate quick and uh, relatively inexpensive. It could be in the $10 range but uh, it would be the type of test that uh, individuals could take uh, and, and feel pretty assured that it's accurate Uh, if not daily, at least several times a week. Um, And so that's going to be a key to understanding where everybody's status over time. We know that elevated body temperature remains controversial, that, uh, again, they're still trying to understand the scientists, physicians, what's going on with them. What are the real symptoms? Why are they all over the place? Uh, Why do people not present in some standard format? Uh, I understand that they've identified a a somewhat uh, normal Uh, symptomatic um, response, um, the way that it's uh, expressing itself as, you know, fever, and then we've got headache, you know, so forth. But um, I don't think it seems standard. But in this case, um, that uh, we've got to keep moving and and understanding more about that. Therapeutics, um, as we've mentioned before, still just an incredible amount going on uh, in the therapeutics area. Um, right now, when we look at therapeutics, in other words, somebody has got the disease. Now we want to try and do everything we can to minimize it. Uh, Six hundred ninety-eight uh, unique active compounds are in heavy-duty development. Um, overall, uh, in the one hundred eighty-eight are antivirals. Three hundred thirty-one treatments are non-antiviral. They're designed to uh, protect the body or protect against the response. Um, They're finding in a couple of studies, it looks like that a key component here is protecting the blood vessels themselves. And so there are existing compounds or or medications that do that. Um, And so that seems to be a key part of what some people have sustained symptoms and damage for a while or for quite a while, potentially they don't know, but a lot of that may be related to blood vessel damage. So they're coming out with quite a few um, uh, therapeutics in that area that are protective uh, that have, been, that have uh, been shown to be protective with other illnesses. So that's good news, the uh, sheer amount, um, the brilliance of what's going on, and then learning not only for singular or monotherapies, but as we talked about before, these polytherapies, um, combining different things together, uh, things that are uh, steroidal or anti-inflammatory, as well as um, affecting the virus, the cells, and so on. Um, Vaccines included in there, again, we're looking at 179 vaccines uh, in current developed that are known and registered um, and with uh, a lot of uh, financial means behind them and uh, looks good 138 of those are preclinical uh, vaccines so they're going through again computer testing then moving into uh, cellular testing then moving into mouse models or other animal models and then into humans. Is what we call phase one. Phase ones; uh, those are normally around uh, small-scale safety trials. Twenty-five of those at least registered. Uh, phase two expanded safety trials are fifteen registered trials there, and again, the all critical in uh, moving toward the finish line of us understanding phase three trials. Now, seven uh, vaccines are in large-scale efficacy testing um, as of uh, this week. So. It's a, it's a race, but it's a, a rigorous and careful race um, to help deliver um, vaccines that will again uh, simulate uh, whatever different means, use different means to simulate the disease, but the point is to trigger the immune response, uh, something that's sustained, again, looking at the neutralizing antibodies, B and T cells, and so forth, <clears throat> so that if now the human, we are exposed to the actual live virus, Uh, we onboard it um, through our eyes, nose, or mouth, then we have a real good chance that it either will not become infectious or will be very minimized. The infection will be minimized. So um, exciting news there that there's so much going on in that area. Uh, Mask. I think many of you all are familiar um, with the Duke study where they were evaluating first. They did a meta-analysis where they looked at dozens and in some cases hundreds of mass studies have been conducted over the last few years Um, and, you know, again, we do this in criminology, and you'll just, you evaluate studies that are very similar, but then you have to normalize or make different um, metrics and inputs and outputs similar so that you can assess them as a group. So these meta-analyses are uh, one way to do that, and so they're looking at that, plus they conducted sort of physics tests in the lab, looking, again, using light and understanding how much of each type of cloth and the fold of the cloth, the layers of the cloth, or whatever the material is, um, provides the most protection for the wearer, and the protection for those around the wearer, if if the wearer is um, viremic or is infectious. So, um, as we all thought, it looks like right now, uh, the N95 respirator fitted mask um, provides the most protection for the wearer and those around the wearer, um, followed by the surgical mask that has multiple layers and has folds in it. Increases uh, all designed to reduce the amount of um, droplets and aerosols that can move through either way, one way or the other. Um, but even with the cloth mask that most of us have out there, you're um, seeing a, a minimum of 30% reduction in likelihood of infecting another person uh, or being infected. So 30% may be enough to obtain uh, normal herd immunity in certain areas, potentially. Uh, Over time here, you know, again, there's all these caveats, but just more evidence that the mask wearing is good. We know that there's always counter evidence, but the mounting evidence, um, looking at mate analyses, not just hand picking or cherry picking, it's called right, a fallacy that's out there. One of them um, that there's, it provides pretty significant coverage for most people. Um, But addition, even this test group still recommends frequent hand washing, not touching our uh, eyes, nose, or mouth, or even our face, um, and so on. And then that's that's still a great way to stop the spread. Um, so uh, looking at masking, you know, I know here we've been looking at the mask studies and we were conducting two studies of our own. One, how criminals are using the mask, of course. Two, our uh, two-parter on the second one, do uh, mask intimidate people? How do we minimize that intimidation? And then the second part, how do we help uh, customers, employees feel safer, more secure, more confident um, by, because of the mask and how the mask is being worn by those in the store uh, or in those they come in contact with. And you can imagine it can be a significant part of retailing if people aren't, don't want to come into your store because people are not wearing masks or, or they're wearing you know, a gator as they call them. We talked about that before. Um, or just a sliver or a scarf that it turns out is not providing very much, if any, protection. In fact, there, you saw there's evidence in the Duke study that the Gator somehow amplifies the risk rather than minimizing the risk. Um, so it's, it's important that we're trying to do everything we can so the customers and their loved ones feel safe and secure. We've talked about that for a long time at the LPRC and conduct a lot of research around that. And this is one component of that. Um, you know, if you've got employees that have a flimsy, covering over their mouth, they don't have a a mask or that's flimsy or it's not covering their nose or it's just haphazardly put on, Um, that is a signal to others consciously or even unconsciously, I'm not convinced these people know what they're doing or care or something that's not good that could preclude uh, that confidence that we all need for retailing. And every shopping uh, event is critical to every retailer um, now more than ever. Um, looking at the science behind non-compliance. And of course, we've been having calls around and uh, looking into why are people non-compliant, but also why do some non-compliant people become uh, verbal or even physically violent? Um, but we, some of the reasons we are understanding, of course, non-compliance, people are self-conscious, don't like being in a mask. It feels them, makes them feel uncomfortable psychologically. Uh, or... Like they might be offending somebody. You know, it's not, hey, I'm wearing a mask. This doesn't seem right as a human that we want to see each other and communicate and be open and transparent. Uh, That plays some role and explains some of the variance in compliance. Um, Discomfort, of course, I'm one of those that wear a mask, but have never found it even remotely comfortable. Um, But that explains some of the variance again in non-compliance, just the sheer discomfort. You know what? I I can't stand it anymore. (laughs) I can't stand it at all. Uh, Not a good excuse, but another uh, explanatory variable. Um, You know, uh, another one is just, we all know, uh, resisting the mandate. You know, I'll I'll put my shoes on, I'll maybe even fasten my seatbelt, but I'm not putting the mask on. Um, You can't make me. So we know there's that resistance out there. Um, And uh, not sure exactly why, but part of these things, these things feed together. We know like with any... Uh, research that we do, the, the science, we're trying to understand the variables, test them, but we code them, and then we can compare them statistically, how singularly they might affect the outcome, uh, but how they work in combinations, right? So their main and uh, interactive effects, just like exercise and diet and hydration are individual explanatory variables, uh, predictors of whatever some, let's say, a, some kind of a cardiac event outcome. Um, but they, but interactions between those two, medications and so on, we know have interactions, their own effect, they, but they might have a different effect when they interact with another. So um, that's what's going on here. So you might be skeptical also and resisting the mandate. Uh, it does feel uncomfortable. Um, you even feel a little self-conscious. Um, you may believe or it does interfere with your breathing. It's another explanatory variable. So you'll see these things, com- combinations. Uh, there's been some research during the, uh, during because of HIV and some of the other viral infections we've had on masking before this over the last few years and um, provide some good evidence to uh, some of the scientists look at this selfish to selfless scale the, the more selfish you are versus selfless are you more internally or externally or oriented you know explain some of the non-compliance you know look it's all about me I don't like this it's not comfortable I don't believe in the government I'm not I don't buy this. This is a real uh, problem. COVID is not for real or it's um, things like that. demic and so on. These things that we're seeing out there um, to a selfless scale. Hey, I might not believe in things and all, but I do believe in helping or protecting, safeguarding, not intimidating others and so on. So just giving you an idea, feel for us. We read the literature, as it's called, the research out there that exists, and the logic or theory behind what's going on and how they test that. Um, it's been very interesting. Another key principle here um, is safe versus safer. You know, do, this doesn't make me safe. I'm, this is a 100% protective uh, procedure here. So I'm not going to do it versus, well, but you're safer. It can reduce it, you know, by... 30% your risk of an uh, onboarding an infectious dose. Yeah, but I want 100% or it's nothing, you know, you know, so there's these sort of uh, that kind of thinking sometimes that goes on in us. Uh, well, if I'm not totally safe, then I'm not doing this. You know, if I get in a head on collision, I have a, a seatbelt on, I'm not safe, uh, but you might be safer. So uh, we, you know, that's the kind of debate and us trying to understand the psychology. And again, all of these, all the reason behind this, and any research that we do at the LPRC, is okay. How can we use this? Look at other people's research, conduct our own, but all to assist and support um, safeguarding vulnerable people and and uh, assets. So, what are the indications, implications from some of the research as far as understanding how can we better communicate with our signage and other messaging? Uh, how we might say something or approach an individual. Uh, understanding, uh, hey, we would like all of our customers and all of our employees to feel very safe and secure or safer uh, here than they they might if this is going on. So please all work with us, but how do we uh, understand message approach and handle situations to maximize compliance and hopefully a safer environment for all and uh, more conducive to good trade and commerce um, but, and a good workplace, but at the same time um, not trigger certain things. Or if, or if somebody is triggered, and we see it happening, and it happens probably daily, uh, but across three hundred thirty millions 330 million humans, it's still a very rare event, but it just takes one uh, event where somebody's injured or killed uh, or frightened and intimidated to uh, create the, diff- the downside risk that we don't want. Um, so a little bit about how we look at things and how we're trying to turn this into actionable uh, things. So we're coming out with some recommendations um, or some suggestions anyway, uh, based on what other research is showing out there. Uh, we can do some things online, some things now in uh, these places and spaces like before. Um, but uh, that's some of the, what we're looking at now. How do we support the retailer to Uh, minimize, maximize compliance in a safer environment while minimizing the idea of conflict or if it arises, uh, that that can be safely and quickly handled. Switching over now to to, uh, LPRC, and I'll let Tom, if you're inclined to address, by the way, uh, the looting situation, we know that rioting and destruction, and we're seeing a lot of personal attacks by some of the groups out there that either are or are masquerading as Antifa, Revcom, uh some of the BLM activist side, um, uh as well as some of the uh more right-wing or in or the uh other anarchist groups that are out there and how they're operating. So I, if Tom if you're inclined if you want to address some of that um, on our call we took on we onboarded some of the information from uh the over th- 30 retailers that we all were able to debrief together. That report's been put out uh to the members um, it's on the LPRC website in the LPRC Knowledge Center um, joining 325 or so other reports um, and uh, Tony I know we sent you a, a group of all the some responses from all the cluster calls including that one um, we've got the uh, I wanted to bring up the LPRC app it's free app um, we hard, highly recommend it we've got a lot of RSS feeds you know feeds that come on there so it's like Twitter it costs nothing you just click it, opens, and now you've got your feed you can thumb through that's coming in, again, from security magazines, um, from LP magazine, from d you know, Downing and Downing Daily, um, from CDC, from DHS, from uh, the National Hurricane Center, and so on, multiple sources. So now it's a one-stop, just quick uh, thumb through, and you can get briefed fairly quickly. It's something that you can, uh, everybody across your enterprise, your organization... Uh, including you, can use, uh, myself included, to update ourselves very rapidly. Uh, And then you can go in and understand more about other things. And if you're a member, of course, you can go even to a next level. You can go and understand every working group, what they're working on, see their call notes. You can have curated pushes to you of, uh, I'm interested in violent crime research. I'm interested in product protection research, uh, supply chain protection, retail fraud, um, organized retail crime whatever those feeds, uh, those pushes are in there for you. Um, you can, you can actually pull up and look at webinars. We've got a bunch of them that we've done, uh, listen to the podcast and on and on. Uh, so i highly encourage everybody uh, at your favorite app store, download the LPRC uh, free app. And it's pretty cool looking too, on top of that. Um, the, the We're doing a series of three member brief calls coming up. Uh, one, one, uh, coming up shortly, we'll be on LPRC Innovate. We're going to walk the, the the members through Innovate, all the cool capability, all the powerful capability that's been that's been uh, stood up here, uh, including the virtual reality uh, lab. We're starting to put little clips out there. Some of you might have seen them on social media. It is that uh, it's really neat, but it's really provides so much capability for our team to work with the retailer or others, a solution partner. Um, And look at those environments, we can very quickly or relatively quickly craft that environment, um, including everything. The look and feel, the ambient noise or sounds, uh, even alarm sounds, anything that's relevant, uh, fairly quickly flashing lights, EPVMs, whatever. We can move fixtures around. We can do those things, the the self-checkout units. Uh, But we can create the environment, put the person in there either from their screen or even better, of course, with the VR goggles. Uh, especially if they've got uh, audio capability. And now we can start to assess and get feedback from them and present different options. What if this looked like this, or it looked like that, A or B or C, or, you know, we can do that and we can do things in combinations. I mentioned main uh, and interactive effects. Well, what if you did this and this, um, you know, and so on. So it's going to, it's going to allow us now to much more rapidly and fairly accurately Um, measure options in addition to what we can do in the simulation lab. And then of course, uh, manipulating a little bit in some of the actual stores, particularly um, some of the retailers over 30 around their chains. They use stores in Gainesville to work with us. Um, We call the store lab program. Um, So look for that. We've got one on impact. So that people are very familiar with impact. It's going to be an amazing two day event. Um, We've been working long and hard since, March of this year, and uh, we've got a really good team. The band's back together again. that's done some amazing physical impact conferences, and they're excited. We're excited. Um, all the content, look for the content. I think it's coming out. Um, if not late this week, it'll be next week, so you're going to see what the sessions are all about. Strategy at the same thing. Working hard, getting that ready to go. Working groups, we're getting more and more guest speakers into our seven working groups. Um, that are bringing more and more data in addition to our team. So um, a lot going on around the world, a lot going on at LPRC to try and support you all. Uh, So with no further ado, I'd like to head over to Tom Meehan. And Tom, if you can bring us up to date on some of the scams and some of the uh, violence and some of the things we can do about it.
2: Sure. Thank you. And I'll start kind of just to touch off with the LPRC and Uh, something that we've been working on and uh, I'm happy to say it seems like it's moving forward is really called a virtual SOC, but really utilizing the LPRC SOC and creating uh, a a place for uh, the members of the LPRC to go. Uh, We'll probably start with a weather event because we believe that a weather event will be the thing that we can control from a data consumption standpoint. But what the idea is and the hope is that in the future, we'd have a full functioning SOC. So um, if you wanna learn more about that, please you can either come to the Innovations Working Group, you can reach out to myself or anybody at the LPRC, because we're still in the planning stages and we will have to take a phased approach. We know that we'll have to start with something, but imagine a place where you, and it may be very well be the LPRC app, it could be a different output, but you'd go uh, during an event uh, that's a national event or a global event. And if let's just use a weather event, you'd have information in real time that you could actually validate and see uh, similar to what you'd see in any other uh, social engagement app to validate the information. And why we think that's important is when we talk about civil disturbances, there's so much information at once. We're trying to create a place not only where you can gather that information, but you can have some real-time validation. So uh, certainly if that sounds interesting at all, uh, even if you're not a member and you're a solution provider with a not, uh, either an open source intelligence gathering platform or social media um, mentions or monitoring platform, reach out. Um, we're really looking to make this a robust application. I know that we're talking to companies like Planet with satellite imagery uh, and then just a whole host of things. And what I would say is we're not envisioning it to be um, like what's out today. It's going to be a, a consolidation of different things. Switching gears to some information that came out um, from the Federal Reserve Bank, and this is really interesting information because it doesn't really bode with past uh, kind of global or economic events. Is a total revolving credit card debt uh, is down by ten percent, uh, for according to the Federal Reserve. So, and in the spring it was down as much as forty percent. So, what you're seeing is that there's less credit card spend, less spend, um, and however, debit card spend is flat. And the why why am I talking about this on this? Because it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, be, normally what you'd see is an increase in credit card usage. There are some theories out there. It could be that a lot of the uh, stores had changed. This is the first time that stores has closed the way they did. So people weren't out, but um, there's some other data that doesn't necessarily bode with that theory. So, Today, um, the credit card spend is increasing a little bit, but it's still still ten percent down. One of the things that's really interesting is if you go back to March, that you have significant significant increases in next day shipments. You know, three hundred percent up in March, three hundred five percent up in in April um, compared to the year prior. So you're seeing um, huge increases online. Obviously, the volume isn't going to Uh, be the same as in stores, but you have increases of 91% in mid-March in sporting goods, 600% card-not-present transactions. So think about that: 600% increase uh, month over month in a uh, card-not-present transaction. So what? What the the natural thought process here is: What does this open us up to for fraud? And as I said many times, this this is happening in real time, so we don't know wines and spirits and crafts up by 900%. So huge, huge increases of online sales, not not suggesting that these sales are going to replace in-store sales, just suggesting that when we think about risk and we think about risk modeling for credit card fraud, um, we have no data to support that type of growth. So we're learning in real time. And when you think of things, those are the early numbers. When you round it out um, since March, your, your percentages are still up. So when you take your uh, Combined averages, you're talking about 500% up in wine, 490% up in in pets, supplies, uh, 140% in sporting goods, 90% in in vitamins and wellness, and 60% in home office and electronics. All of things that potentially in the past would have been categories in lower risk than your typical credit card fraud uh, type items. This poses a challenge for retailers and merchants. whether they ran an online channel before or it's new to them, that, that, that model data isn't as readily available on these huge spikes play against models. So all the risk modeling really is going to have to continue to be adjusted. And even with stores opening up, we still don't necessarily see um, all of the, the changes coming to play. The other thing that, that's important to note is that there was a significant increase in um, chargebacks, now the, the chargeback data is isn't all readily available because, as everybody knows, it depends where you read it from. But one of the things that we're seeing is online uh, retailers are experiencing the same kind of chargeback result in criminal, just using someone's credit card. But there's a, a you know about an eighty percent increase in friendly fraud, uh, so an actual customer making a purchase and then claiming they didn't get it. It's a pretty significant number when you think about. Um, You now have, uh, again, I think Reed and I talk about this all the time over the CLPRC, the person that was walking the line that took advantage of the opportunity, there's a lower perceived risk of being caught. So they went ahead and said, what will happen if I just pick the phone up and say, that's not my charge? It's an 80% increase of that, which is a significant increase. Um, There's also other categories of significant um, increases in fraud that we haven't seen in the past where... Gaming and wireless fraud are, are one of the fastest-growing areas. Year-over-year uh, year growth, uh, it was, and it continues to be um, higher than it has been for account takeover uh, in general. Continues to be a challenge, and it, that's in any type of account, not just credit card fraud, but it re, you know it transitions to credit card fraud. And when you think um, you know, in 2019 account took over, reached over $9 billion. What is that going to look like for 2020 when you have all of these folks at home using more accounts, taking um, uh, online to the next level? So That just leads me to all of the things that we, we continue to talk about. Is to, if, for the listeners on the call that are merchant and retailers, you know, it, it is an important time to really take a look at your credit card risk models and then look at the future and how you are going to operate in your stores when you open. Um, in an environment that could be more contactless. There's a lot of different um, information out there about cash. Uh, We all know that cash is not uh, dangerous, that there's there's, you're not going to catch COVID from using your cash. It's highly unlikely, but there are a lot of people out there that think that. So there's been some changes, but uh, what you have to think about is when as stores are opening and as customers come in, the new... um, type of shopping behaviors and what that means for credit card fraud and risk for us. And then switching gears just because I, I, I talk about scams, online scams all the time, and I think it's kind of important to continuously remind everybody um, of this because it, it really, really um, kind of hits home with that scams are not limited to any type of um, particular purchase or a, a event. So puppy scams are, you know, up um the off the chart for reporting. So like, it's hard to give you an exact number of how high they're up because there wasn't a lot of reports, but there's studies that suggest today that more than 80% of um, the puppies online for sale are are fraud and scammers. And there are some red flags you can look for, but the reality here is that with the increase on people staying home, adoption was up in animals. So the scammers went out and they, they took um, a, they took a look at at a different way, and I said eighty percent. I'm sorry, it was three hundred percent reported um, up uh, for that, and eighty percent of the puppies online are are what they believe is to be fraud. So that's where the number came from. But it, when we think of fraud, we don't think of things like that. But the reality is, anything that there's deposits or money being exchanged online is unfortunately at risk of being taken advantage of. And I look at this, again, as an opportunistic or a very clever thief taking advantage of the COVID-19. Um, and just basically what, what what we're seeing is that they're posting pictures. You're going in, you're, you're looking at this dog, you love this dog, you're putting a small deposit down, and then your money is gone. It's similar to what we saw in uh, probably the mid-2000s with the real estate boom after uh, right before the crash, um, of people just taking deposits for apartments that weren't theirs and taking advantage of people really running through, um, and these deposits are substantial. You know what 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 we what the reports are showing is that they're between five hundred and a thousand dollars. So when you're thinking of you know a six or a seven thousand dollar purebred dog, people are putting these deposits down. Sometimes they're doing it um, where I think anybody in the security field would question it. You know. Mm the end-users asking for um, a gift card versus a credit card for deposit, things like that are obviously red flags. The other big red flags, uh, which uh, I was not aware of, but uh, when people are offering COVID insurance for their pets, what they noticed is in the 80% of uh, listings that they found, there were commonalities in the red flags around things like COVID insurance, which doesn't exist for puppies. Uh, future vaccinations for, for your dogs, included for COVID. So uh, while these these scammers are somewhat unsophisticated, um, they are uh, much like what we see, their behavior staying consistent. I did a little, little digging online and didn't see a lot of chatter about this, except from reported from news agencies and law enforcement. But it just serves as a reminder that um, no matter what we're doing, to really stay vigilant and look at everything, Um, and take that extra special uh, care to, before you go ahead and and give anybody any money to make sure that it's okay.
3: Over to you, Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. And I'm actually gonna build on actually some of the online data that you talked about. So the numbers are in for July. So online sales uh, increased 55% in July, but growth actually slowed. It was an amazing up 76% in June right now adobe is projecting uh, that 2020 online sales will surpass all of 2019 by october 5th 2020 think about that this is before we get to cyber monday before we get to all the holiday sales will already have beat all of last year by october so it's going to be an interesting year for online sales fulfilled by buy online, pickup in store, or BOPIS was up 23 uh, percent in July over June. Good news for apparel. Apparel sales online were up 3.6% in July. Uh, one of the things that's interesting that uh, this week from the data is that e-commerce operations require three times or three x the space of store operation. As a result, leasing activity for warehouses is up 50% at JLL during the pandemic. And UPS and FedEx at the same time are increasing prices for shipping, putting surcharges in place, and also limiting shipments. So it's going to be an interesting holiday season. So the good news, retail sales online are up. The bad news, retail sales online are up because it's actually much more profitable for a retail to have a consumer walk into the store because of all the costs that I've just described. One of the other interesting thing this week is where is the money being spent by investors in terms of uh, technology? So where are where are, where are uh, investors making bets on what the next retail technology is in 2020? And CB Insights had a new report uh, this past week. Deals and funding and retail tax are declining because of the pandemic. So in the first half, they were down, the first half of the year, they were down 42% over the same last year but there is more tech as into e-commerce tech that's up six percent in q2 and 3.1 billion was bet in terms of uh, new technologies in e-commerce investments in new formats such as mobile enabled vending machines and contactless uh, checkouts is up five percent tech deals and supply chains decrease 15 percent in terms of our number of deals but there are more robots uh, activity going on and uh, discussions in terms of investing in robots. Uh, there was an increased demand for solutions for faster delivery, and those yields were up to 53%, and online grocery tech was up 21%. In terms of the tech, that uh, technology that, that is actually getting attention by retailers, it has this type of a profile. First of all, automation. So Anything that shifts employees' roles and reduces contact is getting attention, optimization, uh, finding efficiencies at the store and online, omnichannel management, more connections between e-commerce and store operations, virtual management, adding interactivity and personalization to e-commerce, and then in enabling broader reach, so expanding retailer touch point, in other words, having more channels to market. Interesting to the robot statements that I just made, actually American Evo announced last week that they're expanding the number of robots they're putting in their warehouses by 26 to do pick faster for e-commerce. Gap is doing the same. So more robotics coming to manufacturing inside of uh, warehouses. Um, speaking of apparel, uh, there is a lot of clothes that wasn't sold during the spring, but we were locked down. So what's happening to all those clothes? So one of the places that they're going is they're flooding uh, charities. Uh, Good 360, which is a nonprofit, expects $660 million in donations this year, double last year. They're also going into recycling. So LVMH, or which owns Louis Vuitton, is doing a lot of this, they're so recycling a lot of this. What is not being done this year uh, is destroying uh, the goods, which is not a sustainable approach, and actually got some uh, Burberry, some bad press in 2018 when they disclosed that they destroyed $37 million worth of merchandise from the previous year. Uh, This week, we also saw a peak in terms of what happened to crime in the first half of the year. To some new reports that came out of uh, DD. So, first, I'll talk about the organized retail crime report. The number of cases were down 26% through Q2 this year to 608, and that's the second lowest on record. Total amount was $54 million versus $101 million in 2019. By type of organized retail crime, uh, theft and shoplifting was 62% in 2020. Down from 70% in 2019, robbery was 26% in 2020, up from 12% in 2019, and employee theft was 6% down from 7% last year. The top categories of organized retail crime are electronics at 29%, clothing at 18%, and 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 then uh, drugs are are. 15%. The hardest hit states are California, Florida, and New York. Also this week uh, was the Violence Crime Report, and this is the one that shocked me, actually. 253 deaths uh, took place in retail locations, up 22% in the first half of the year, and up 45% in Q2 which is during the peak of the pandemic, so where 125 uh, individuals were killed. Uh, By category, in terms of who was killed, 28% were suspects, 40% were customers, which is down 2%, 26% were associates, which is up 94%. That was a shocking number. And 6% were law enforcement and as protection, loss prevention, and that's up 133%. Where are the incidents taking place in terms of violence in stores or deaths in stores? So 55% are in the store or mall, 39% are in the parking lot, and 6% are off-premises. And again, think of the zones of influences of the LPRC and really scaling up protection. That's getting more important than ever. The top three formats in terms of violence is uh, c stores, 33%, restaurants, 15%, grocery, seven and a half percent, and the top three cities, finally, are Houston, Philadelphia, and then tied for third place, Chicago and Cleveland. So violence uh, inside stores was up, especially in Q2, uh, and that's that's a disturbing trend that, again, we need to work with the LPRC to figure out how we get to a unified approach to stem it. And I'm gonna close with a new report that came out from the National Retail Federation, on who were the hottest retailers in, uh, uh, in, and this is their 2020 list, but it's really ranking the 2019 hottest growth retailers. And some of these were interesting. So number one is Lidl, which is a German retailer, which is a uh, low-cost grocery retailer. They are expanding aggressively in the United States. They grew 69% in 2019. Worldwide, just to give you an idea of how big they are, they're a $126 billion retailer. Wayfair was number two. They grew 29%, uh, and their worldwide sales are $8.4 billion. Number three is Built.com, which grew 26%. Number four were Don Quixote, which is out of Japan, and they grew 24%. They actually have worldwide 10 billion sales. They're small in the US, but worldwide they have 10 billion in sales. And number five, And this again was interesting because the other ones were smaller retailers. Amazon was the 5th fastest growth retailer in 2019 with 21% growth and worldwide their sales are 250 billion. So that's good, some good news from retailer. There are formats that are thriving. So we'll see how they did in 2020 through the pandemic and beyond. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over back to Reed.
1: All right, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you, Tom. Um, and so, a lot of good information or actionable information out there um, to help us get a better purview. We all need data at the different uh, strata, you know, that macro, that meso, and that micro environmental level. Um, it just it just helps us to have a common operating picture, right? And that's something that we've talked about with the SOC lab that uh, Tom mentioned a few minutes ago. And uh, we're excited about. The SOC Lab, by the way, the research that's going on there, and uh, traditionally, all of we are a research organization, clearly, uh, founded in 2000, uh, working with over 60 uh, major retail chains and then uh, over 75 major technology companies or solution partners, as well as some major manufacturers like the P&G and so forth. Um, but the SOC Lab is an example where we're trying to research and understand the best ways to Uh, That a retailer, a retail enterprise, uh, they can generate a uh, common operating picture for their executives. They understand uh, a a very dynamic situation to the best you can, particularly at distance, uh, whether it's a storm, a flood, an earthquake, um, a riot looting situation, uh, or, or God forbid, an active killer shooter uh, scenario, Um, and then uh, provide as much information to uh, themselves for decision-making, to the executives and those that they work with uh, at the top levels all the way through, and of course, to be able to pull together and push all the relevant data, imagery, list, contacts, everything they need to the local uh, on-scene commanders, the first responders. So that's kind of the research focus that we've had uh, with the SOC Lab. Uh, additionally, as Tom's mentioned, uh, several retailers have approached us and asked if we could help uh, maybe working in con- conjunction with some other organizations, um, a, a fusion center type, uh, particularly because of the uh, SOC or EOC capability, the security operations center or emergency operations center capability of retailers in our group over 60 chains varies varies widely to really no capability to some type of VSOC, virtual capability on their mobile devices uh, through a part-time room that can be stood up and activated uh, in the case of an emergency, uh, all the way to a full-time, fully capable security operations center or EOC. So, um, But how do we pull together relevant information, uh, particularly in a particular air, in a specific area that's experiencing an earthquake or a storm or a riot or um, something worse so that uh, you could pull from not only that what you can get um, online and in public venue or from your own team on the scene, but uh, also from others and share that information so that there's even a, a brighter, clearer, more actionable picture. So that's giving you some insight into what we're talking about there. Um, I want to remind everybody, please, um, at your convenience, go to our uh, LPRC website, lpresearch.org, lpresearch.org. Um, and and particularly right now, we've got the new LPRC Innovate uh, page stood up. Uh, Kevin and Tom have done an amazing job. Uh, it's bright and colorful, but it's very informative. Um, and it's got links that you could go in and, and uh, look at and um, and explore the capabilities that we've now got in our really five different labs, SOC lab, ideation lab, simulation lab, activation lab, engagement lab, uh, and now the virtual reality lab. So um, please, at your convenience, take a look, understand the capability. We'd love you to reach out, uh, and engage us, talk to us about uh, innovation, R&D, uh, or exploratory or confirmatory research you're interested in, we'd love to work with you and we'd love to get you into the LPRC committee over 150 corporations and uh, working together, collaborating, uh, but always science evidence-based uh, wherever and possible. Check us out for impact. It's free this year. Um, again, at LPResearch.org, you can register for that um, and get involved, get engaged. Um, so, From Gainesville, I want to again thank all of our team. Thank you all for listening and ask you please stay safe out there. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Oils Prevention Research Council.